Today we're starting a two-part mini-series, you would say. I'm going to be preaching this week, obviously, here I am. Jasper is going to be preaching next week. We're going to pre- I'm going to preach from 2 Timothy 3 today, so if you could open your Bibles there, 2 Timothy 3, and then Jasper next week is going to preach from 2 Timothy 4, just the first part of it. September 2nd, 1945. So this is however many years ago that was. I can't do the math right now. September 2nd, 1945. World War II ends. In total, considering all the cas- like casualties, so death by combat and then starvation, famine that went along with it, 85 million people in the world are dead from that. And the war ends... By the United States, our nation dropping two atomic weapons on two Japanese cities. And in those two cities, in in a matter of seconds, 100,000 people are obliterated. So not just burned or charred, though some were gone, atomically scattered. Over the course of the war, six years, 1941, essentially to, uh, well, it depends when you consider the start of it. We don't know all the details But over the course of the war, six million Jewish people, plus more people that the Nazi regime considered to be subhuman. So Romani people, homosexuals, political dissidents, mentally and physically disabled people, they were all slaughtered or put into concentration camps. They were tortured, executed, or they died of starvation and exposure. I've been to one of those concentration camps Dachau, near Munich, Germany. And I remember, I was there as a boy, I was 15 years old, and I remember the the gate above one of the entrances had a a slogan that said, Arbeit macht frei, work sets you free. That's burned in my brain to see that. Go back, May 31st, May 13th rather, 1865, the American Civil War ends. A quarter million soldiers and probably another almost 500,000 people, civilians, are dead. Their bodies are heaped on green fields, ripped apart by bullets, artillery. Who was the enemy? Neighbors, fellow citizens. Each one of those neighbors and fellow citizens convinced in his own mind of his rightness. Go further back. 1648, back to Europe, the 30-year war ends with over 8 million people dead at that time. That was a tremendous amount of the population in Europe. Most of them from starvation, probably 3 million of those 8 million dead from combat fighting with swords and spears and bows. What started as a war between Roman Catholics and Protestants quickly became about which nations would control Europe. So states use religion for power, and religion used the state for power. And then go back further to the Roman Empire. 313 AD, the Edict of Milan ends basically over 200 years of persecution of those who follow Jesus Christ. They were ostracized. They were excluded from participation in society. And sometimes they were pursued and imprisoned and executed. Interestingly enough, Rome didn't oppose Christianity per se. Rome was pantheistic. It had freedom of worship. 
The oppression and persecution of those who followed Jesus wasn't based on their worship. It was based on their loyalty. Pray to whoever you want, right? Gather in the ways generally however you want. Worship whoever and whatever you want. But don't mess with the stability, peace, prosperity, and longevity of our empire. Now we think about history and there's single words that mean deep and painful things to us. Crusades, Inquisition, Holocaust, Bosnia, Rwanda, Darfur, 9-11. More than 2,000 years since the ascension of Christ. And what do we see? Times of peace, but times of rape and murder, famine, racism and genocide, violence, division, death and persecution, And now 2020. It's not as bad now as it has been in the past. And yet we all know in our hearts that something's not right. A novel coronavirus and the ensuing government actions across the world have paralyzed some of us with fear and have paralyzed others of us with rage in our hearts about what's going on. And nearly all of us, every one of us, are tempted to disdain other human beings based on what they think about something. Economic hardship and instability. Some industries are decimated by government actions. Others prosper from the chaos. Riots have erupted at different points in time and across our nation. Even the mere mention of words like race, justice, and police brutality causes a boiling in our flesh to say, I'm right. I need to justify myself in what I, what, I, what I think and say and do. And then on Tuesday, we face a national election with all sorts, just all sorts of deep and very difficult questions for people who follow Jesus. Where do we find the answers to those questions? It's not the first time that things in our country have seemed on the brink. It's probably not as bad as certain times that we've seen in the past. But times aren't good. What will the future hold? We don't know. Two questions we want to think about this morning. How did we get here and what should we do? How did we get here and what should we do? And we're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And notice that we're skipping chapters one and two. So we're jumping into the middle of a letter, a message, something that Paul, who authored this letter, wrote to Timothy. We're skipping the front two parts of it to get to something that we want to talk about now. And kids, well, actually not kids, let's say middle schoolers, right? Isn't it weird how the pastor always talks to kids like you're all like little kids? I get it. You're middle schoolers, you're high schoolers, and we're glad that you're here. Hunter, I'm glad you're in middle school. I appreciate you. I'm glad that you're my son and that you don't act like you did when you were six years old. I'm glad you act like an 11-year-old. All right, so let's say, so middle schoolers, high schoolers, let's say you're in charge of the family right now because your dad goes out to do something. I don't know, he has to get something at Lowe's or Home Depot. And then you get this text and it says, Watch out for the poisonous snakes in the basement. And you're like, whoa. So the first thing you would think when you get that text is what? I'm not going to go in the basement 
because there's poisonous snakes in there. Except you're in charge of taking care of your little brother, who, who, by the way, is an absolute savage and doesn't listen to anyone, right? And you know what your brother did? Your brother went down into the basement where the poisonous snakes are. So what do you do? You know there's something dangerous. You know something that is hard, but you have to go do something because your brother is in trouble. At the end of 2 Timothy 2, Paul wrote this to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil and correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God calls the church to teach and correct with kindness, with the purpose that people will be saved from the devil. So when we jump into chapter 3 and look at some of the things there, the context that we have to remember is that's our purpose. We're to preach a message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then knowing that, we have to know something else. Look at what Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 3. Know this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. You need to know that the goal is not for this to be easy. There's a different goal. The goal is not for this to be easy. There's a a different goal at hand. Last days. Now, some of us hear last days, right? If you're part of uh, evangelical Christianity over the past, I don't know, 50 years, you hear last days and what do you want to do? You want to speculate about antichrist and treaties you want to say, what about the mark of the beast? But when the New Testament writers wrote that phrase last day, so Luke wrote it in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul wrote it, Peter wrote it, and then whoever wrote Hebrews, whoever that might be, he used that same phrase as well. When the writers wrote about the last times, they were thinking about right now and the future, right now and the future to come. They were basically thinking this whole age since, since the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. And we need to know this, understand this, that in the last times, in the age in which we live, there will come times of difficulty. That's what the ESV translates that word as difficulty, times of difficulty. You see that word difficulty one other place in scripture. It's in Matthew chapter eight. So Jesus had just uh, calmed the storm and they're coming across the lake. And then they come upon these two people who are demon possessed, these two men who are demon possessed. And it says in Matthew 8, what verse is it? I have it written down. Matthew 8, 28, that the men were so difficult, so fierce, so violent that no one could even pass by them. Everyone avoided those people. It's the same word. That's, the, that's what the times that we're in are. Fierce, violent, terrible, perilous, difficult. And there are times. It's not just a difficult time ahead in the future. There are times, perilous times. It's plural. There's difficult, hard, perilous, dangerous times throughout history. So fierce times will come to the church right now and in the future. Things will be hard. You'll face persecution. Your faith will be challenged. And the goal is not for things to be easy. That's not God's intention. The goal is... It's to preach a message of repentance leading to Jesus Christ. That's what we as a church do. But look up what what we're up against. So look at verse 2. Why will there be fierce times? Well, it's the first two word, at least in the ESV. For people 
will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and the list goes on. I was reading the verse, and then you can see I've also included kind of a parallel type of verse to this from Romans 1. It's interesting how similar the two passages are. There's ideas from this. We're not going to break down every one of those things. That would take weeks to understand. But you get the idea as you look at this? This is not good. People will be lovers of self. There'll be arrogance, greed, evil. People will reject authority. The ultimate authority sign in our lives is our parents. They'll be disobedient to parents. So they'll reject authority. There'll be harmful speech. When the Bible uses that word slander, it comes from the same word that's used for the devil, the accuser. So when you slander, when you use your mouth to try to hurt people, you're doing the same thing that the devil does to you. Slanderous. People will be thoughtless. They will do things without thinking. They will act without checking with the word of God. They'll break promises. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But as I studied this, there was one big thing that was scary to me in it. And it's this idea of hatred. Multiple words up here just describe this idea of hatred. There's one right in verse 3. You would see it tucked away in there. And it's translated in the ESV as unappeasable. Unappeasable. Implacable, maybe it says. I can't remember what translation would say that. But what's with that word? It's the idea of not being forgiving. And as I looked through all of God's word, I noticed three things that highlight this idea of hatred. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Abel offers a proper sacrifice. Cain does not. Something happens in the heart of Cain and he hates his brother. And God goes to him and warns him. He's like, sin is crouching at your door. You have to to master it or it'll own you. But Cain was very angry and his face fell. And then Jonah 4. Jonah eventually goes because God basically forces him to go to the Ninevites and prophesy and preach repentance. And at the end of it all, Jonah sits there in anger and he says, you know what, Lord? Take my life from me for it's better me to to die now than to live. What's going on in the heart of Jonah that he would look at God saving someone and say, you know what? I'd rather die, God. I would rather die than you save my enemies. And then jump ahead to the New Testament. Jesus tells a story about two brothers. One goes and wastes his inheritance and the other stays at home and does the right thing. And the son who the father thought was dead, the young, drunk, licentious, foolish son comes back. And the father throws a party. And the older son sits outside. He's like, I'm not going to go in there. It says in verse 28 of Luke 15, he was angry and he refused to go in. How, How dare you have mercy on anyone, father? How dare you? I'm the right one here. Where did all this come from? When you look at 2 Timothy 2, sorry, that's 2 Timothy 3, and then Romans 1, where does this come from? Where does this list come from? How did we, how did we get here? And the answer is that we got here because of idolatry. Now, if you look at 2 Timothy 3, you'll say, I don't know where Bjorn's getting idolatry out of this. It doesn't say anything about it in the passage. But as you consider what Romans 1 says... 
It's key that all these things, all this awfulness that seems to be inside us comes from a single thing, and that is the worship of something besides God, idolatry. We should have Romans 1 up on the screen. So that same passage that ends with all those awful things, kind of at the outset of it, Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What happened because of that? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what did they do? They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Fierce times are symptomatic of idolatrous people, people who worship things other than their creator. And when we do that, God turns us over to what we worship and disorders our lives in judgment. That's what happens. Chaos and disorder always follow idolatry. That's what happens. That's the pattern that we see in the word of God. Verses 2 to 5 that we see in 2 Timothy 3 that talk about all these awful things, those are symptoms and the disease is idolatry. So when our nation, you look at the United States of America, our nation, when you look at our lives, our families, our relationships, if you look at even and, and think, guided by the Holy Spirit, about the things that you think about and love the most and the things that you desire, when those things start to look like verses 2 to 5, the problem is idolatry. And here's the, here's the challenge with that. So we read about idolatry in the Bible. Um, take take the, the people before um, Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. People are down there and Aaron's trying to lead them. And what do they do? They put together a, a baby cow that they start worshiping. We look at that and we're like, you know what? That just looks stupid. And I find myself thinking this. When I look at Israel, when I look at um, ancient cultures that you see in the Bible who worship the sun, who were afraid of the moon, and this is what I'm thinking. And maybe I'm alone in this, right? Maybe it's just me, but I think, you primitive dummies. You're dummies. There's not a baby cow in the sky that gives you peace and prosperity. Foolish people, why do you bow down to the sun? It's a yellow dwarf star, a hot ball of glowing gases at the heart of our solar system. Doofuses, why are you afraid of the light of the moon? You big dummies. That's just sunlight off the yellow dwarf star. It's reflecting off Earth's only natural satellite, a gravity-rounded astronomical body rounding and orbiting our planet. But the worship of those ancient peoples was wrong not because it violated our scientific method. It was wrong because it wasn't of the one true God. Any worship that is not the worship of God is idolatry. John Calvin said it this way, a name perhaps you've heard. He did more than just... uh, do stuff that they named a, a university after him for. He said, for what is idolatry if not this? To worship the gifts in place of the giver himself. To worship the gifts in place of the giver himself. 
So what does that look like for us? In America, at Summit Church in West Michigan? What does that look like for us, right? We don't have sun gods. We're not afraid of the moon to go outside because it might make us sick. We don't worship baby cows. What does it look like for us? Origen, one of the early fathers of the church, wrote this. I think we'll have it up on the screen. What each one honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. What do our calendars say about what we honor, admire, and love? What do our bank accounts say about what we honor and admire and love? What do the words that we speak or post on different social media platforms say about what we honor and admire and love? What do our relationships within the church and outside the church say about what we admire and honor and love? What are we thinking about when we wake up in the morning? What are we thinking about before we go to bed at night? What do we worship? What are your idols? Here's another way to think about it. Tim Keller wrote this. What, if it is threatened to be taken away from you, shakes the very foundations of your life? Now, I get it. You probably didn't come to church this morning to be lambasted and convicted by a preacher who's talking about idolatry. No one's excited about that, right? But I want to encourage you this morning with this. So hear both the rebuke, the correction, and the exhortation, the encouragement by the word of God. God cannot be taken from you. So if the picture of your life is this unceasing, frenetic kind of working and striving and fighting to keep your God, then either you don't know who God is, and the Bible will tell you, or you're not worshiping the one true God because God cannot be taken from you. God says this himself. He promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the promise of God. The Lord said this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The Lord said, behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. The word of God says nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. How did we get, how did we get here to where we are now? Our national and state governments, dumpster fire. I mean, it's exceeded trash can fire level. It is a full-blown dumpster fire. People are selfish, they're hedonistic, and they're filled with hate. We know that from the words that they say. The media across the board, I don't care what channel you watch or what website you're on, twist things, it's lies and slander. The family structure is rotting. The created order of sexuality is trying to be rewritten. And there's disdain for human beings that's deemed now to be acceptable and even celebrated, to mock people created in the image of God. Why? It's because our love, our honor, and our admiration is not for God. We're treasuring the wrong things. Jesus said it, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what's the solution? 10,000, if not more, voices across our country are preaching maybe 100,000 different ideas for what we need to do. What should we do? How did we get here? We know how we got here. We rejected God. So what should we do? Amidst a swirling storm of opinions, there's a risk, right? 
And there's a risk that we as a church, Summit Church, but then the broader church, all those who are in Christ Jesus, looks at the idolatry of the nations and tries to fight that idolatry with other idols. And then it's just a battle of idols, which will only create more chaos and disorder. No, there has to be a different answer. It's in in the word of God. Look at verse five, the end of it, what Paul wrote to Timothy. Look at it, look at it. Avoid such people. He literally wrote, avoid these Avoid these. Avoid what you read. In verses two to four, those behaviors, people that exhibit those behaviors, avoid those people. Do not be like them. Turn away from such people. That's what that word that we translate avoid means. It means to turn away from those people. And yes, there will be a sermon at some point that explains the nuance between turning away from someone but also trying to disciple them. That's not the sermon for this morning. The sermon this morning is to turn away from such people. Avoid idolaters. That's what we should do. We should avoid people who are worshiping the wrong things. Turn away from those people. We should turn away from them, not because their behaviors threaten your freedom, not because their sin jeopardizes the prosperity and longevity of our nation. We should turn away from them because there's something far more insidious. And it's those idolatrous people will tempt you to turn your heart away from God. Avoid such people. But here's, here's what's tricky with that. It's not like they're walking around saying, hey, I'm here to get you to engage in false worship. Come come along with me. I'm a false worshiper. Look at verse five. Go ahead, look in the word. These people, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They creep into households and capture weak women. They're burdened with sins and led astray by passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Some of these people will seem to be saying stuff, Some of these idolaters, people who have rejected God, will seem to be saying things that are true, stuff that sounds pretty good. They'll quote Bible verses even, and they'll talk about God, maybe the importance of having a Judeo-Christian ethic, and working hard and living a full life, and loving people and how to receive God's blessing. They look and they sound godly. That's why they're dangerous, but there's something missing from their lives, and that's genuine faith in God. They creep into households and they upend whole families. It's interesting. We arm ourselves. We lock our doors. We install cameras and $300 doorbells with cameras on them that are Wi-Fi connected. And we do that so bad guys won't get into our house. And then we turn around and basically let them in with books and blogs and podcasts and YouTube videos. We let them right into our house. Bad guys into our house. And it's the same pattern that we see through all of Scripture starting in the Garden of Eden. This passage is not saying that women are uniquely somehow targeted and uniquely deceivable. It's just saying this is a pattern of what happens. Men sit there and do nothing. And then women are deceived. It's not a statement about gender there. It's just a statement about a description of what Paul saw in there. And I'm not talking about trashy movies and shows, right? That's another sermon altogether. I'm talking about false teachers, false gospels. Gospels that capture our hearts by affirming and reinforcing our idols. Void of repentance and the power and majesty of Jesus. They never challenge or question our hearts or motives. They only stroke our passions. Just like it says in verse 6. What's your passion? 
If self-righteousness is your passion, if that's what you're all about, if you're all about, I can do this myself, you're not going to gravitate to a, a teacher that says, in Christ alone. You're not. You want to hear that God helps those who help themselves, right? That's what you want to hear if you're self-righteous. It's a false gospel. It's, it's a works-based righteousness and a prosperity gospel rolled up all into one false gospel. If sensuality is your passion, on the other hand, you want to hear that because salvation is by grace, sin is inconsequential. There's no repentance or transformation. You know what that is? That's a gospel of Halloween candy. That would be like, hey, kids, you got tons of candy yesterday. And you know what? Jesus loves you no matter what, even if you eat all your candy in one fell swoop and then puke it all over the floor. But because Jesus loves you, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter that that was stupid and wrong for you to be greedy and gluttonous in consuming all that candy because Jesus loves you. That's not what the Bible says. If greed is our passion, we want to hear that godliness is a means of great gain. I follow God, and he blesses me and gives me whatever I want. He's like the uber edition of the genie from Aladdin. The Bible says godliness plus contentment is great gain. And if we're control freaks, we want someone to affirm our rebellion. We don't want the gospel. We don't want submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. False teachers affirm and reinforce the idols of our heart with false gospels. That's why we're supposed to avoid such people. Because they're tempting, but they're dangerous because they're preaching not not things that we're aware of. They're preaching what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. Don't mistake knowledge for truth. Don't be someone who's always learning but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. Who's always reading books and sharing videos and saying, read this and that. More and more ideas and less and less of Jesus Christ. Paul gives an example from Jewish history there. You can see it in verse 8 and 9. I don't know how to say those names. I'll just say Jonas and Jambres, right? They were the magicians who opposed Aaron and Moses before Pharaoh You remember what happened? So God tells Moses to tell Aaron to throw his staff down, and it turns into a snake. You know what Jonas and Jambres did? They did the same thing. Boom, snake from a staff. Pretty impressive. Then God uses Moses to turn water into blood. You know what Jonas and Jambres did? Same thing. Pretty impressive. Then God used Moses to bring a plague of frogs. You know what Jonas and Jambres did? Same thing. Same thing. They did the same thing that the godly person did. And then, who remembers what happened next? Moses takes his staff and he strikes the earth and dust come up. And what happens to the dust? The dust becomes gnats that overrun the people and all the livestock. God raises up the dust of the earth itself in judgment against people. And you know what Janice and Jambres did? Nothing. They could not do anything. They couldn't repeat it. And you don't hear anything about them from that point forward in my reading of scripture. What often shows the folly of false teachers? Time. 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 Patience, waiting. Don't be eager to follow a person who seems really cool and who says all the the right things and seems powerful and engaging and seems to have it all together. There's a chance that they're just sweetly and carefully stroking the idols that are in your heart. They never call you to repentance. Avoid such people. So what should we do instead? We should avoid those people and we should follow godly examples. Look at verses uh, 
10, 11, and 12. How do you know who godly examples are? You follow their teaching. What does their teaching say? How do you test their teaching? You test it against the word of God, but not just teaching. So it's not just sharing a video. Hey, I saw this. I'm going to share it to you. Godly conduct. It's not just what a person says. It's what's they, what, what do they do? And not just their conduct, their purpose, their aim in life, their motivation, the driving force of their life. Look at the, the words in verse 10. And what do you see out of that? You see that Paul and Timothy knew each other. There was relationship there. Paul is saying to Timothy, you, you know me. You've seen my life. I'm not just some guy that you saw online. And the life that you've seen demonstrates faith that's displayed by patience, love, endurance. And when did it show up the most? When did faith and patience and love and endurance show up most? That's when, when Paul suffered and he was persecuted. Godly examples don't explode in anger when they're persecuted or when their God is threatened. Godly examples demonstrate confidence and joy and peace amidst trial and uncertainty because their confidence is in the one thing that can never be taken away from them. It's not just for leaders. Look at what verse 12 says. Everyone, everyone, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I think the next two paragraphs, if I have it laid out right, are probably the hardest thing for us to hear. I'm prepping your heart for that. I want you to weigh it against the word of God, not just an emotion you might have in hearing it. We need to stop trying to build our lives on the false idea that the message of the gospel needs freedom and prosperity in order to survive. We need to stop trying to build our lives based on an idea that if our present way of life, how we're accustomed to do things, is destroyed, that somehow the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ will be destroyed along with that. That's not true. It's unbiblical. It's not what Jesus says. And if that's the full pattern of your thinking, I'm not saying a temptation, if that's the way that you think, that will make a shipwreck of your faith. If my hope is in freedom and prosperity, My hope will be lost if that's taken away from me. Instead, we should build our lives on love and patience and endurance. That's what godly examples demonstrate. I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. Actually, it'll probably be Wednesday or Thursday, right? I I have no idea. Everyone has their predictions about what's going to happen. And then, besides those predictions about what that means for our nation and then for our lives, as a church, as families, as things like that, everyone has a different set of opinions. But I do know that if my hope is in God, whatever happens has no power over me. Absolutely no power, because God is in control. What should we do in fierce times? Follow godly examples. What else should we do? Abide in the word of God. We should abide in the word of God. That's the answer. It's a message. That's what our church should do. Verse 14, but as for you, so Paul, again, writing to Timothy, continue in this. You learn these things. You learn them from your grandma. You learn them from your mom. I don't know where Paul's dad is. 
I would encourage some of you with this. Hey, maybe you don't know where your dad is, or maybe your dad's not part of your life. Maybe the same thing is for your, your mom. God is in control. We don't know where Timothy's dad was, right? We don't know if he was part of his life. The Bible only speaks that Timothy's mom and his grandma were pouring into his life, but they were pouring into it with the sacred scriptures, the holy word of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Abide in the word of God. That means to remain in the word of God. That means to live in the word of God. What are the sacred writings that you you read there at the the middle of verse 15? It's the Bible. We have more of it, more fullness now than Timothy had, but, but he added as well the sacred writings. There's nothing in all this world that's able to make you wise for salvation but the word of God. There's life in the word of God because it directs your hearts and minds to Jesus. There's hope. Why is there hope in the word of God? Because it directs your hearts and minds to Christ Jesus. There's power in the word of God. It's the same power that spoke the world into being and it's right on your lap or on your digital device in front of you. All scripture is breathed out by God. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture, so another way to translate that is everything that's been written, everything that's been written, every passage in the Bible is breathed out by God. It's all God's word. God says these things. That's amazing. So people that, that pull the red letter trick, they're like, I'm only going to do what Jesus said by what the red letter is in my Bible. That's, that's crazy. It's not true. All scripture, everything written is breathed out by God. Paul created that word by combining God and, and breath, breathed out by God. That means God says this, and then God brings life to this by his spirit. And it's good for teaching. God's word shows you the truth. It shows you the truth. For reproof. You know what this means? It means pointing out your sin. When you see the truth, in that truth you see, I'm wrong. I need to change. And I need someone to help me do that. It's useful for teaching and reproof. And then correction. So in recognizing that I'm wrong, I I need some help in recognizing, well, what's right? And that's what correction is. And then training in righteousness. That's discipline to keep going when it's hard. It stings when a man stands on a platform and calls out your idols. But this is necessary and it's profitable. Why? So that you are 100% equipped to live out the purpose for which you were created and redeemed. Why do you exist? The cool thing is, we've been studying about that. How did we get here? Why do, you, why do you exist? What's your purpose? However many thousands of years ago it was, on the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image and after our own likeness. God had created you to be like him and to represent him on this earth. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. God. 
So the world would see man and get a, a picture of what God is like. Whereas workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And doing good, we carry out the purpose for why we were created. You know what happened though? Adam and Eve, they basically abdicated their responsibility. They screwed it up. And if I was there, I would have done the same thing. I'm still trying to decide if Heather would have messed up. And in that sin, the image of God was not lost. We're still image bearers. But it's marred and scratched and smeared. We still show God to people. We, we're image bearers of God. We still represent God, but we do it wrongly. We misrepresent God. And our worship goes from the creator then to created things. And God's judgment happens after that for our idolatry. He brings chaos and and disorder to our lives. But the awesome part is that God then sent a man, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, his, his image of God, the image he's bearing of God, that's not marred or smeared or scratched or messed up. He's the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus redeemed us. And he redeemed us for the same purpose for which he created us to be image bearers, to do good works, that people would understand who God is. As we say this, this message burns in our hearts. We know that that's what Jesus did for us. But how do we know it's true? We know it's true because of the word of God. That's what tells us about the truth of Jesus Christ. Every passage written proclaims truth and speaks to who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And ultimately, it's saying, Turn away from your idols. They're not going to work anyway. And turn to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Maybe the next months will be fine. Maybe we'll look back on this sermon, right? And it's like, that guy was overreacting, wasn't he? He was pretty crazy about that. Fundamentalist. (laughs) Maybe it won't be. But I'll I'll tell you what I've observed, and that's the swirling chaos of disorder. Deceives us into thinking there's something else that we need to do as a church. That there's some other hope, right? We need something besides the gospel, besides the word of God. Some plan or strategy or way of, of doing something. Some other mission, some other necessary course of action. But preaching the word of God. God's word calls us back to himself towards his sufficiency and he will do all things and we have him. How did we get here? We worshiped anything and everything but God. But the awesome thing is now we know what to do because the Bible tells us. Avoid idolatry. Don't worship Don't honor and admire and serve and love anything but God. Follow godly examples. You know what's awesome about being part of a church? There's godly examples all around us. And then listen to and obey the word of God. Abide in Jesus Christ. That's what we should do. Father, thank you for Summit Church. I pray that we would leave this place encouraged by who you are and what you've done. 
But I do ask, God, that you would work in our hearts to turn them towards you alone, that we would not trust in kings or chariots, as the old writers wrote. We would not trust in armies and power, that we would resonate as we read the prophet who said, not by might, nor by power, but my, by, by my spirit, says the Lord. How did we get here, God? How did we get to the point when I, when I even try to research how many babies that have been killed? I, there's not even a number. No one knows. And we think it's okay. And we look back on the ancient people, God, who took a baby up to the top of a mountain and slaughtered it to try to appease the gods. And we say, they look so stupid. And then we do the same thing in hospitals or clinics. And others of us look at those people and we don't want to bring the gospel to those people. We want them to be slaughtered too. What's wrong with our hearts, God? We need you so much, God. We need you. I don't know what else to pray but that work in our hearts that we would know how deeply we need you and thank you that you promised to show up and that you're with us and you won't leave us or forsake us whatever happens and lo you will indeed Lord Jesus be with us until the end of the age we love you Jesus it's in your name that we pray amen amen lots to think about Lots to affirm this morning. Christ is our only hope. Let's stand together. And before we leave this place, we're going to make one more declaration that he is the end all be all. Let's confess this together. In Christ alone, my hope is found.
pillars is fervent prayer and you know the scripture talks about God saying it's one of those used passages that maybe people use all the time and misinterpret or use but really I think it applies God wants his people to humble themselves and pray you want to experience healing in your land it's going to start with the people of God admitting we are nothing without him we are going to pray we're going to have humility and realize we cannot live in our own strength we need him we must be willing to repent of the idols that we've turned our affection and our love and our hope and our trust to, where the first commandment has been disobeyed completely, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and everything within our being. All of our delight has been in things other than God. So what I want to do right now is I want us to pray together. I'm going to pray, and it's a prayer that I, I think is going to represent the heart of us all, and you pray with me together as a church. Let's go to our God boldly right now and talk to him. Heavenly Father, God, you made us. You know us. You've put us where we are right here during this time of history that you have made, that that you have written. We are simply living it out. And God, I have to admit that the hurricane and the storms of life have pulled us in to be sucked into the same rhetoric, the same thought process, the same idols and the temptation, just like those in the past who would look up and serve the moon. We here are pulled in because of the circumstances around us and we've began to serve man and science and the ways of man and the plans of man and a man and people and programs and things that all represent our own strength and ability. We've put all of that. We've been sucked into it. God, please forgive us. God, if we have you, if we have you and nothing else, we have everything that we need. I pray that you would be very patient with us because we're all at different levels of life, different areas. We're not all there 
And we can all feel that struggle within our heart and that conviction within our heart where we place our love and affections on things other than you. So my prayer is you'd be patient with us. You'd forgive us and you would help us during this time. Be with our country. Bless those who are in leadership. Protect them. Help them. Take their heart and mold it to what you want. Take our hearts and mold it to what you want. Help us to focus back on the original plan, which is that we were predestined in Christ Jesus to be conformed to his image and to walk in good works that will shine light and the hope to people that an end is coming and judgment is coming. But a great God who loves us and who made us has made a way for us to be reconnected to you. Help us to display Jesus as the greatest hope for this world. And let us not place any other message beyond that. God, we pray all of this in the great and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, remember you are always loved. Have a wonderful, wonderful day and week.